Welcome to another edition of UCBS on Times Live. Richard Callant was excellent, as he characteristically is, the last time him and I engaged on podcast. We were talking about why it is that President Sol Ramaphosa is so weak on the question of mandatory vaccinations and leading from the top and initiating legislation and testing it constitutionally to see whether such policies could indeed pass constitutional muster rather than leaving it up to, for example, companies like Discovery to do it on an ad hoc basis within the workplace. Well, in a funny way, Richard is back for a similar question which is why is Ramaphosa and the rest of the South African state seemingly I suppose I'm being biased in my framing, but seemingly lacking moral cowardice in relation to the question of what our international relations posture should be on the question of Ukraine being invaded by Russia. We've just had over the last day or so a United Nations resolution condemning that act of warfare and trampling on international law and trust South Africa to abstain rather than voting in favor of the resolution. They then tried to explain themselves with a two-pager that was worse than simply abstaining without explaining yourself. Richard has written about this in the Mail and Guardian. I've written a piece for Times Live, and both of us have also on social media engaged Durko. And so I asked Richard to come and shoot the breeze on this critically important question, uh, one of the most important global news items facing us right now. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Richard, thank you so much for being back on this platform. I really appreciate it. Eusebius, as ever, it's a great pleasure, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation because it's a difficult one, but I'm hopeful that you and I, in our usual style, can really unpack it, unpick it, and and kind of uh, tease out the nuances because I do think it's very difficult. And in fact, my starting salvo, if you'll forgive me for saying so right at the start, is that this is what I'd call a wicked issue in, in that it's there is no binary yes, no, right, wrong kind of answer. It's extremely complex, uh, and... Uh, I hope we'll get into that. I'm sure we will. I want to go there and maybe, you know, also I was also wary of bringing on someone with whom I will only disagree because we don't want an echo chamber, but we also can't engineer disagreement where where there is none. Um, Our fellow commentator and analyst, uh, Professor Adam Abib, made a similar preliminary point as you and said that there's important nuance here that we are missing. Maybe I can start there. I mean, it's a slightly obscure point to start, but but let's be nerdish and also get into the real politics. Is it really that complicated, though? I see the issues 
maybe this is just my tendency to try and look for clear moral principles as a moral philosophy student. The issues are morally black and white as I see it. You've got international law being trampled on. You have an unprovoked act of war on the part of Russia invading the Ukraine. And then you've got a whole bunch of what I would call footnotes that one can talk about, but they amount to changing the subject. So, for example, which is what Adam was trying to do, of course, we can all talk about the inconsistencies in how the West respond to Palestine or Yemen or the rest of the African continent. But ultimately, doesn't that just amount, Richard, to a case of whataboutism? You can simultaneously critique the inconsistency of the global north and be unambiguous that what Russia is doing is both unlawful and unethical. So I, I guess I'm somewhere between your uh, clarity of thought and your clear-mindedness about the morality of this and the kind of, um, I would say, intellectual sloppiness of the Stop the War movement in Europe and Britain, which which seems incapable of holding those two thoughts together in, sure. in one brain. The two thoughts being, on the one hand, that there is a moral outrage being perpetrated by Putin. And I'm, I'm saying Putin rather than Russia, because mm. I'm yet to be convinced that this is Russia. I believe this is Putin. He's an autocrat. He's a dictator. This is his agenda, not necessarily the, the agenda of the Russian people. Mm. So we must be quite clear about that. So there's that moral kind of absolutism even there, or clarity perhaps, versus, on the other hand, the, the Stop the War movement, who say, well, in a whataboutist way, as you suggest you say this, that in fact, because of the inconsistency and hypocrisy of the West, they cannot be supported here. Mm. Um, what my, my German friends are, are putting to me, or European friends are putting to me, is that this is a seismic shift in geopolitics. This is a, a, a once-in-a-century event. That what is going on in Ukraine is going to reset the international order, or it could do. And that, therefore, what is required of foreign policy officials and diplomats is agility and nimbleness to respond to that context. And context is always important. You and I know that. And what the, the officials and, and, and experienced diplomats in Durko are saying to me is that it's because of context that they are sticking to their principles, which is a principle of non-alignment, political dialogue, and multilateral uh, peace forging. Now, that's a complex agenda. That's where I think the nuance comes in. And that leads South Africa to to abstain. I think the abstention was wrong. It just puts us on the wrong side of history. And it may not even serve our interests to be in that club of 35 that abstained. But I do have sympathy. And indeed, I even support quite a lot of the thinking and the reasoning that lies behind it, at least on the side of those experienced veteran diplomats within Durka. Can I push the last part? Because everything else you've said to me is both solid and persuasive. But you are not only a, speaking of veteran, veteran political analyst, you're also an excellent legal scholar. And textual analysis is important. And you latched onto the same thing that annoyed me. I just didn't have the energy to read, tweet and engage, which is if we look at the statement, I'm looking at it now, in which our government tried to explain itself, they say the conflict involves two members of the United Nations in an armed conflict which this organization has at its foundation the responsibility to prevent. And a little bit earlier, they say, we strongly urge all sides to uphold international law, including humanitarian law, and so the sentence go. Now, my, my 
problem is very simple with that, Richard, that you could normatively say that your international relations guiding principle is non-alignment in a world in which the global north hegemony should be dislodged. And one of the ways to dislodge it is not to become a pawn in the attempt of the global north to continue to exert itself as a singular epicenter within the global system. But you can have the general principle and pay attention to the facts of a particular case. The two sentences I've just read out wrongly introduces a moral equivocation that should make us ashamed as South African citizens because it makes it seem as if we do not know the facts of how this conflict started, as if the two parties to the conflict are busy mooring each other with equal lack of provocation and that they have the same firepower. And, and all of those things are factually not true. So in a sense, the nerd in me wants to invite you to talk about the complexity around non-alignment, but it, it, it helps our government if someone like you or Adam or myself were to shift the conversation to IR theory, when in fact we first need to call out the government for pretending as if there is moral equivalence between Ukraine defending itself and Russia invading. Well, I was <clears throat> largely sympathetic to the South African position up until that so-called explanatory statement last night. My piece in the Mail and Guardian yesterday was was very generous to South African sure. policymakers, and it it it, it 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 reasoned on the basis that Putin has not bribed Durko. Let me put it in blunt terms: he may have bribed Zuma, he may have bribed the ANC. I believe he has, uh, and that's part of the ANC's problem. But I hang on, perhaps foolishly, to the belief that within Durko there is a squad of veteran, sage, seasoned officials who are steeped in South African foreign policy making over the last 20 or 30 years, and who are excellent diplomatic professionals, and that they have formulated the position. Now, of course, there are political masters and mistresses, the, the, the president, the minister for foreign affairs, who, who sign off on these things. So they could have interfered politically. They may have made a judgment call about what is in South Africa's interests here. But what the officials say to me is that that principle of non-alignment is what informs their position. And importantly, Eusebius, what works in practice? And perhaps their best point to me was, look, a unity amongst the West, putting pressure on Putin, isolating Putin, that's all well and good. But will it actually make a difference? Or will it, in fact, drive him into a corner, which makes him even more belligerent, even more violent? So there is a practical and pragmatic uh, voice within the South African reasoning that says, will this work? And they, in their in their resolution or their response to the resolution yesterday, they argued that point. However, the explanatory note was a disaster. I agree with you because it created this moral equivalence. It suggested yeah. that there are two warring parties here. That's nonsense. The facts on the ground uh, reveal that's nonsense. The other a powerful, element, right? nation, a powerful yeah. nation has invaded a weaker nation. Absolutely. Period. Absolutely. And I want to bring it to two two areas of your academic um, discipline, which is, which is law. And it oversects with, you know, other, other parts of, of my life. But 
but I want you to speak into this scholarly. When it comes to arbitration, for example, there has to be practical preconditions in place to maximize the possibility of dialogue being effective. What I found also to be quite hollow, and, and there are echoes of this kind of theory, not just in law, but also in you know p- political philosophy, um, Habermas and, and others who, who write about discourse. When you have interlocutors who disagree, there's a, there's a couple of things, basic things that need to be in place. In fact, you don't need to be a scholar to intuit them. You want to respect each other. I can't be beating you up while I'm trying mm. to have a conversation. Mm. And the agenda must be a bona fide agenda of items that we're trying to solve for. And my other problem with the statement was I didn't see enough self-examination of a call for dialogue. You banalize the importance of dialogue Mm. if you call for dialogue without paying attention to preconditions for effective dialogue not being in place. Codessa could never have happened under similar circumstances. And if we are supposed to be exporting to conflict zones, the Codessa model, we've got to be honest um, about what the preconditions are for Codessa to even have a chance to work and therefore pay attention to whether such preconditions analogously are in place in, in what is happening in the Ukraine. I, I agree that a call for dialogue, when you're not certain that one party, the main protagonist, is going to dialogue in good faith, may be an exercise in naivety. And, and equally, it can't be right that that dialogue happens at the end of a barrel of a gun, because that rewards the bully. And, and again, we're talking in basic terms, but you're absolutely right. In, in terms of the theory of negotiation and the theory of political dialogue, there has to be a commitment to good process and good faith conduct on both sides. And so for South Africa to call for that kind of dialogue without insisting first, for example, on a cessation of, of, of violence and a withdrawal, um, I think makes it a very vacuous kind of uh, statement, unfortunately. Um, and of course, if this was Israel and Palestine, the, the South African position wouldn't be the same. It would be very, very different, wouldn't it? And that, of course, that's whataboutism. And, and there's a very thin line between our intellectual engagement on this and whataboutism. But, but surely part of context is those other comparators, because that's where you look for consistency or inconsistency in positioning. I and if this and and surely, I mean, what interestingly, Eusebius, uh, you were infuriated late last night. I was infuriated, and I, I then re-engaged my sources in Berka, who who said, "Oh, we thought this was a stronger statement because it makes reference to sovereignty and territorial integrity." They didn't see what you and I saw, which is this moral equivalence of two sides at war. They didn't see that. Why didn't they see it? Perhaps because they're too close to it. Perhaps because they're so kind of. Um, you know, inured to, to the, the meaning of certain words and, and the language of the UN, that they didn't realize that the perception that was created to people like you and I, who are progressive commentators, let alone to the West. I mean, how the West sees is that South Africa has sided with Putin. Well, that leads me nicely to the other second aspect of your, your specialism law, before we get back to politics properly in the last five minutes, which is international law. I mean... <laughs> One of the hardest things after the Second World War was to try and put together this putative world order in which competing interests are 
inevitable, but we try and create fora that do their best to minimize massive conflict again. And you suddenly have sources of international law developing very quickly. In many countries, those international agreements become part of your domesticated system of law. But fundamentally, respecting those international agreements, which also often implies respecting your own domestic law in the process, that is critically important, isn't it? And and if it is important, then I then I and maybe I'm drawing too hastily a line here and tell me if you think I am, between a deep commitment to the rule of law and neutrality about an international source of law being trampled on. Yeah, so the South African position, let me be their spokesperson for a moment. Uh, it, the South African position is that the two are not mutually exclusive, that a commitment to the rule of law means equally a commitment to the institutions of the global system of governments, and that private, predominantly the UN at the centre, and that those are the institutions that should be activated to, to solve the problem, to, to, to uh, create peace where there is war. And, and the question is whether that is uh, is that a sensible way of looking at things, whether that will work in practice, or whether that, in fact, amounts to a kind of appeasement. Um, after all, uh, Putin has broken international law. Let's be absolutely clear about that. And he has trampled on the sovereignty and territorial integrity, as the, 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 the latest statement yesterday rightly implied. But that should be really important. And, and South Africa, after all, has has spoken very strongly over the years against regime change strategy. It's said that regime change strategy, whether it's in Iraq or in Zimbabwe or wherever, is wrong in principle. They've always been very clear about that. What is Putin's objective here? It is regime change. He wants a puppet administration in Kiev in order to provide a buffer state between the Russian empire, let's call it that, or Putin's Russia, and the West. And of course, one can go back in history and say the West have played their cards very badly. They've, they've, they've pushed Putin into a corner where he had to act in order to kind of uh, protect his security concerns. But regardless of that, he has broken international law and he is trying to exert, he's using aggression to exert uh, an objective or achieve an objective of, of regime change. And South Africa should be standing clearly against that, as well as speaking out in favour of dialogue and peace through international institutions. Okay, so what we've spoken about in the last 15 minutes or so is largely a sort of critical engagement with South Africa's abstention decision and its broad commitment to non-alignment. I want to set aside that question and my listeners can make up their own minds, whether they're persuaded by me or you or have a completely different view. But I I hope I've given you some tools with Richard to just think through some of the issues. I want to move now to a slightly more descriptive or explanatory discussion for our remaining five minutes. And I put just two questions, although they're not small questions. The first is to understand the contextualization, the historical element, the nuance that you flagged at the beginning of our our discussion, Richard. If we try to make sense of, not debating whether it's right or wrong, make sense of the ANC's position in relation to Putin, what do you think accounts for it? How would you explain it? Well, one could um, paint a, a kind of rose-tinted, spectacled uh, view of history that says that through the apartheid era, Russia, Moscow was a close friend of the ANC. They go back a long way. There are 
deep set loyalties there. That shouldn't matter in a case like that, because Putin's Moscow is not the Moscow of those days. Let's be clear about that. This is an autocrat. This is not a progressive uh, political figure. This is a dictator who um, is a right-wing dictator. What does he really share with the old ANC? Very little, one should think. So I think that should be put aside. What I think is more likely, unfortunately, is that Putin's strategy of meddling in the internal political systems of many countries around the world. The Mueller report has a lot of evidence about the interference by Russia in the 2016 Trump electoral victory, equally with Brexit later the same year, and and other countries. And in my article, I refer to a conversation with a veteran ANC politician in 2017, who was concerned about party capture, not state capture, but party capture. He knew that Putin money was coming into the ANC, and he knew the influence that was having, and he was concerned about it. And that was why he, along with others, decided there should be more transparency in part of party political funding to try and smoke that, that dodgy funding out. That's and, interesting. Uh, Sounds like he's an international version of Kevin Watson. Well, in a sense, yes. And and uh, I think he is. He's a rogue, he's a rogue player. And he 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 thrives on instability because instability weakens. And this is a Zuma strategy. You you destabilize your opponents, you destabilize society so that your interests can prevail. I think that is exactly uh, everything I read about Putin suggests that that is his, mm. his game, his game plan. And there's every reason to think he, he did it in South Africa. There's direct evidence, uh, there's anecdotal evidence, and there's the evidence of, of the nuclear deal, after all. I mean, that was that was a corrupt deal to make South Africa buy nuclear power that it couldn't really afford um, from the Russians. Now, I, I fear that this has had a, a major impact on the relationship uh, between the ANC and Moscow, and that it is therefore Im impacting and influencing the way that the ANC responds now. I mean, the ANC's statement, you, you saw it a few days ago, I mean, it was completely incoherent, barely barely t intelligible. I, it, it was not worth the paper it was written on, but what it revealed, of course, was was a, a kind of naked um, uh, of friendliness to to uh, to Moscow. That that was is a far cry from the sophistication, whether you agree with it or not, the sophistication of the thinking that lies behind the the Durko position, or at least I would say so. Um, there's an authentic attempt there to 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 navigate the complexity of this to arrive at a nuanced position. Hmm. whether the destination was the right one or not, versus the crude corruption of, of the interference, the likely interference from Putin with the South African politics. And it would be naive to ignore that. I you know, so I, I find it abhorrent that South Africa, if, if this is what's happened, has ended up with a position where it is appearing to appease a ruthless dictator who has bribed uh, the ANC and interfered with South Africa's domestic politics. That is a horrible position to end up in. Are you, is it? Are you suggesting he's a sugar daddy? He effectively is a sugar daddy, and I think that's one of the way he operates. And uh, he, he, well, he was with Brexit. There are these extraordinarily nasty characters in British politics, like Nigel Farage and Aaron Banks, who were major funders of the Brexit campaign, who who did who did it with Russian money. That's well known. That's well established now. Mm. Uh, it hasn't been acted on. The Tory party in Britain, Boris Johnson, it seems, are weak on Russia because they have been sucking at the uh, the, the teat of 
of that Putin font of money and, and corruption. Let's be clear about that. So he has weakened the ability of a political system, democratic political systems, to respond appropriately to, to Russia. And that was his intention. And now the West is having to regroup, spit out all this bad money, uh, cleanse itself while standing up to this, this extraordinary crisis that is unfolding in Eastern Europe. And which threatens not just the region, but let's be clear, it does threaten the world because it could easily escalate into something much more than a regional conflict. I want to speak to you for a whole hour, but I promised I wouldn't take up that much of your time. So I've got two two questions, um, but I'm only going to pick one, even though both of them I think are really important. Um, let me let me end off by asking the big picture question, which is about South African foreign policy and. It's interesting what you were saying about a bunch of Durko officials, diplomats that you trust, that in your view and in your engagement privately, as you try and understand what goes on in the state as an analyst should and as a researcher, have got a technocratic commitment to a certain positionality within the world and, um, and that they are acting on a bona fide basis based on certain principles. Years ago, uh, Richard, when I was a Ruth First Fellow, I tried to understand South Africa's foreign policy vote on Libya and, you know, the invasion around that to try and make sense of it. And one of the things that unsurprisingly, in the more theoretical part of my research, um, I, I tested for and, and came to fairly obvious conclusions but I had to verify them with interviews of the kind that you're talking about, including with one of our former ambassadors to the UN, is that um, it's very academic, isn't it, to talk about a moral, moral foreign policy, foreign policy based on human rights. And I struggle to put that in my article in a way that won't make me susceptible to being misunderstood, because after all, I'm criticizing the South African government ferociously on this issue. Um, but from a normative point of view, in academia and in IR literature, we talk about realism, moral foreign policy, a foreign policy based on a consistent exporting of human rights, for example. And I, and I think as citizens, we should insist on those principles. But in the real world, you actually have ad hoc decisions all the time. And you've got a set of competing interests, including economic diplomacy, that often does more work in terms of the operating motives of our diplomats from Geneva to New York to Addis than some cons perfectly consistent commitment to South African constitutionalism. Well, indeed. And, and I mean, it's an oversimplification, but international relations theory and practice is in a sense governed by the competition between a kind of normative values and principles-based approach to life and a, a real politique, realist or neorealist approach, which is served by interests rather than values. For me, the question now is what are, what, what are the real interests at stake here for South Africa in, in the Ukraine crisis? And what's been put to me by, by European friends, by people who believe that the, the right thing to do is to isolate Putin, is that South Africa is not going to just be on the wrong side of history on this, but actually will not serve its long-term interests. Yeah. Because Putin may well fall eventually, his regime may change, and, and what then have you, where do you end up with your relationship with, yes. with Russia? BRICS 
is a, an, a very uh, shaky uh, construct, clearly. Brazil voted for the resolution yesterday. Uh, India and China abstained like South Africa. Where do South Africa's real interests lie here? And, and there is a danger that, that the West powerful interests there will look at the list of 35 abstentions and, and it may take a lot of rebuilding of trust to, 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 uh, to, to recover from yesterday. People very angry with South Africa for abstaining. Let's be, let's be clear about that. So I hope South Africa is clear about the interests and all the principles that it is, it is serving in, in taking that uh, position. Um, and of course, one of the things, you know, harking back to an implied question of yours is, is you know, thinking about Mandela, uh, who wanted to have a human rights-based uh, policy. And for three or four years, he managed to have a two Chinas policy because he wanted to remain stoically supportive Taiwan. But in the end, real politics took over. And for trade and economic reasons, South Africa abandoned Taiwan in order to have the stronger relationship with China. What's the equivalent here? I don't know. It's it's too complex, and and the, the circumstances on the ground are are changing greatly. South Africa needs to be nimble. That's my last point. The foreign policy makers they need to retain, uh, persevere with their with their principles, but not be dogmatic about them. They need Absolutely. to be light on their feet to be responsive to what is an extraordinary volatile mm. uh, and uncertain terrain. Richard, as always, absolutely stunning. Thank you so much for engaging. Deeply appreciate it. Thank you very much, Yusebis. As always, I enjoyed our conversation enormously, and I wish it could continue on and on, but uh, that would be unfair to our listeners. So thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.